Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to this latest episode of the Engineers Collective and the last one of 2020. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer. And I'm joined by the rest of the editorial team. So that's news editor Rob Horgan. Hi Claire, Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you. Features editor Nadine Badu. Hi there. And our reporter Catherine Kennedy. Hi Claire. Who's joining us for the first time on the podcast. And together we're going to be looking back at the last 12 months in civil engineering and get out our crystal balls to consider what 2021 may bring for the sector. So what a year 2020's been. My first in the editor's seat on NCE. And it's certainly not been the year I anticipated. I expected carbon net zero and Brexit to be dominating our news coverage. But I think coronavirus has had different ideas. Like many people, we're all still working from home and wondering whether the pandemic will trigger a new way of working with less time in the office once we have a vaccine for COVID. It sounds like a great thing for work-life balance, but what does that mean for the infrastructure sector? Let's first take a look. What did the pandemic mean for the industry? So when the pandemic struck, I was actually off work at the time. So maybe I'm not the best person to uh, to run through what happened. But long story short, all the sites shut down eventually. Everyone panicked about how they were going to carry on doing roadworks, railworks, while maintaining two metres social distancing. There was a, a sort of pause in work for around a month or two during the first lockdown. And then things slowly started picking up again. And... Uh, testament to the contractors involved and the and the clients involved then productivity rates now seem to be up again be a good point to bring Catherine in actually I reckon on this to talk about the impact of preparing sites for dealing with coronavirus and what impact that's had on health and safety overall as I know she's written about that quite recently yeah, so on some sites, Crossrail being one example, they found that their increased focus on coronavirus safety actually led to more of a challenge with non-coronavirus safety issues. So they had more injuries just due to actual site challenges and um, because they had focused on COVID briefings over the more practical briefings. So they're now rebalancing that and having a more overall briefing again. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because although you've obviously mentioned some of the challenges that have been thrown up because of coronavirus, there have also been quite a few opportunities, particularly around technology. I think one of the projects we looked at earlier in the year was um, the use of Keep2M technology, which is basically a tag that is a digital tag that alerts workers when they get too close to each other on site. So it helps them maintain that social distancing. So we're seeing a lot of firms kind of use coronavirus, I guess, as an opportunity to bring in a lot of this new kind of exciting new technology. But I think it's also a great opportunity with that kind of safety stuff that will benefit the industry 
going forward as well, because I think those tags can be used as well to make sure that people don't get too close to equipment or equipment doesn't get too close to people too. Absolutely. So there isn't that kind of just focus on on the, the kind of coronavirus response. It goes, as you said, a lot further. And hopefully you'll see that kind of playing out on a lot of projects going forward beyond the, the COVID crisis. And there's also been, I think, remote site inspections too and drone inspections that have, have taken off as a result of it, which has been quite interesting where sites can be monitored from offices and the amount of staff you actually have to send down can be reduced, people have found. Yeah, I think the use of drones has increased quite a lot really over the last 12 months. You've mm-hmm. looked at that quite a bit in detail, haven't you, Catherine? Yeah, and even for measuring earthworks and, and things like that, where it would take a lot longer for people on site to go down and do it, but that can kind of be captured by the drones and, yeah, it's quite interesting. I had quite an interesting interview with um, Bentley Systems Vice President of Transportation and Asset Management, Dan Vogan, and he was saying that there's been a big rise in remote inspections and he said that the new iPhone 12 Pro has the LiDAR capabilities, so he's expecting growth in remote inspection you know especially staying in the office and perhaps data gathered by more junior members of the team going out onto site and that being a big trend that we'll see over the next couple of years yeah it can only be a good thing can't it i mean if there's a silver lining from from this this year which has obviously been a pretty awful year for everyone let's not beat around the bush but i guess the silver lining is it has brought technological advances um, to the fore and sort of sped them up, accelerated them, to use a, a government term. So whether that's, you know, ordering a beer from your table in the pub or carrying out drone inspections, all, all facets of life have sort of undergone some sort of technological sort of, well, I don't want to say revolution, but, you know, speeding up over the last year. I think it's been quite interesting watching the software that people use for modelling um, pedestrian flow through stations. Normally it's about capacity, how many people can you get through an area in a certain time. It's been interesting how that's t- been turned around and worked out how what capacity you can get with people travelling through with maintaining social distancing. You've looked at a bit of that, haven't you, Nadine? Yeah, Atkins have done a lot of work around that and kind of looking at the way public places are used. And so there's so much work going into obviously making spaces a lot more safer for for pedestrians when they're using them within obviously the the kind of social distancing requirements that we're all looking at at the moment. But again, going forward, I think there's a lot of opportunity for this technology to be used beyond the the coronavirus um, response. Because obviously, you know, as we look at major infrastructure and spaces like, you know, train stations and stuff like that, ensuring that that flow of people is a lot more efficient. I think there's lots of opportunities for the technology to be used there as well. I suppose the other big thing that we've seen over the coronavirus lockdown is the move to funding of more cycling and walking strategies as well up and down the country. We did a podcast earlier in the year looking at some of the work being done in Manchester. It's quite interesting to see how that will develop. Yeah, definitely. And if the anti-high street Ken Brigade get their way, we'll have no all the all the cycling uh, and pedestrian schemes that have been rolled out will be ripped up in the next few months. But I, I don't think that's the case. To be honest, I think we're only going to see more and more of it, and hopefully it will it will lead to you know healthier workforce, especially in in cities. And uh, I think it ties in with this what you were talking about earlier as well about not necessarily commuting to the office on a day-to-day basis people will be more likely to choose to walk or cycle if they're only going in a couple of days a week I think. 
But of course, that change of working patterns creates other challenges. So we've covered a lot on Transport for London's funding issues as a result of the fares dropping. Rob, can you fill us in a bit on that? Yeah, well, uh, basically, long story short, they they were so heavily reliant on fares that when everyone started working from home, they very nearly went bankrupt effectively nearly ran out of money for for everything for new projects for just running the network as it already is twice they've been bailed out or people don't like the phrase bailed out but it is a bailout from government the latest one was at the end of october both times the negotiations between tfl and government went right down to the wire i think the last uh, agreement I think Andy Byford, TfL's commissioner, revealed that it was it was signed with just 14 minutes left on the clock before funds totally ran out and the tube would have had to be shut down. So that's how close TfL came to, to grinding its services to a halt. Long-term impacts are that we've lost Crossrail 2 for the time being, or it's been mothballed. TfL are saying it won't happen in the 2020s, so it's been pushed into the 2030s at the earliest now. That's a result of coronavirus but it's also a result of the extra money that's had to go to Crossrail 1 because if you think of even before coronavirus the money that had been earmarked to develop Crossrail 2 in the mayor's construction infrastructure levy that was originally as I say earmarked for Crossrail 2 but then was redirected to fund Crossrail 1 so everyone will say that Covid and then the sort of terms of the government bailout sort of killed off Crossrail 2 but I think the the initial Crossrail project has has played a big part in that as well. The other one is the Bakerloo line extension, which TfL's always seemed a bit reluctant to fully back. I'm not sure why. They seem to have never really said how they were going to fund it anyway. It's sort of one that they'd always said they'd like to do, but they've never fully committed to it, I don't think. But that's also been pushed, it looks like, into the 2030s, although there are there is a lot of public support for it. So of the two, that's the one I would hazard a guess at could come back online sooner, but we're still talking back end of the next decade, really. So I suppose the other project that's had funding issues is Hammersmith Bridge. I mean, that's been an ongoing thing over the last few months, really talking about that, hasn't it? And someone's saying it's going to be closed for another six years. Yeah, which just it seems ludicrous, doesn't it, for, for it to be closed for, for so long. But, I mean, there are a lot of proposals coming up at the moment in terms of kind of temporary solutions. I think Rob wrote about, obviously, the double-decker um, solution that I think Covey has presented uh, or designed, um, which is a, a potential kind of temporary solution to allow use of the, the bridge while um, it's closed. And also, obviously, the ferry service, which is is in, I think, the... I think it's been approved now, hasn't it, Rob? Yeah, the contract is out, or the contract notice is out, and they want it online by the spring, by March, the ferry service. So there's been, like you say, there's been loads of proposals, both for the ferry service and for a temporary bridge, while repairs are carried out to the main bridge. There's there's one particularly interesting ferry service, which involves a, a floating bridge and a, a navigable pontoon, which at first... Uh, look I really liked but the more I thought about it the more I I think it's impractical because I'm not sure how any river traffic would sort of make its way past there which is obviously a big bone of contention at the moment because with the boat race as well everyone's favorite boat race in the in the the summer they obviously want to get that on again so I don't think that would be able to happen with this this floating bridge idea I don't know maybe I'm wrong maybe it could squeeze through the 
the navigable pontoon gap. I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be plenty more weird and wonderful ideas over the next few months. That's that's one good thing I think that's come out of this is people haven't been afraid to share their ideas. Often we we moaned that we never get to hear sort of alternative ideas for proposals or anything. But the longer that this Hammersmith Bridge funding saga has dragged on, the more engineering firms and architect practices that have, have sort of come out of the woodwork and sort of said, well, here's my two pence, and they've, they've made it public, which I, th- I think um, I'd encourage more of to all our listeners to share their ideas, even if they don't get taken on board. It's still, people clearly want to read about it. Every time we write about some sort of proposal, it gets really well read. So people want to hear hear it. They don't necessarily... It doesn't matter whether whether these proposals are taken forward or not. People, it just spark an idea, won't it? It spark a conversation. And that's something I don't think we see enough of across the industry. So we were following a project earlier in the year looking at the Seven Barrage, weren't we? The idea is it would hold back the tidal water to allow the flood water to dissipate. And that was one of those interesting ideas, isn't it, that could be possible. But you need sort of like that engineering inspiration to bring these ideas forward. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's just about getting the idea out there just to spark a bit of... And we're, we're always moaning that we don't have, you know, a skills pipeline coming through as well. I mean, these these sorts of ideas for double-decker bridges and stuff, that's the stuff that kids will look at and they'll think, wow, look at that, that's amazing. That's, if we don't put them ideas out there, I don't know how you're supposed to inspire anyone to get involved in the in the industry. Well, I guess the other project that we've been looking at is the tunnel idea to go under the RSC. Catherine, you followed that story quite in a lot of detail, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, it's come, I guess, initially from Boris Johnson's proposal for a bridge. So the tunnel was suggested as an alternative to that, but there's, um, yeah, there are a few different challenges. There's wartime munitions where it would go under. So it's a very interesting one and a lot of different opinions, I think, even along the route of where in Scotland and where... Um, in Ireland or Northern Ireland it would go to so um, yeah it's uh, the cost as well as another challenge and um, so there's a lot of different factors going in but some interesting um, designs have been drawn up and um, proposals on that one yeah. Do we know when we'll get an answer on that one Catherine because I know the government are doing a review of it aren't they they've got Peter Peter Hendy chairing a review do we know when that's meant to report back is it early next year or are we getting it before Christmas? I don't think before Christmas anyway, but yeah, I'm not actually sure. Yeah, no, that'll be an interesting one to follow up in the new year, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But I suppose going back to the funding issue, the project that did get funding is the roads network in England. So we've got RIS2 came through £27 billion worth of funding in March. But that's hit a bit of a roadblock, hasn't it, Rob? Yeah. Excuse the pun. Yeah, roadblock or to quote Lower Thames Crossing Director Matt Palmer, a speed bump, he'd call it, rather than a roadblock. So, yeah, the the funding envelope was approved in the March budget just before COVID hit. Uh, It would have actually been interesting to see whether it had been approved had, say, the pandemic come in a month or two before. But I guess the government had thrown their weight behind it and they're sticking to it. We've seen developments on the two major schemes. When I say major, they're the biggest schemes, but they're also the most controversial ones, the Stonehenge Tunnel and the Lower Thames Crossing in in the last few weeks alone. Uh, Lower Thames Crossing is redoing its development consent order application after the planning inspectorate 
fed back to them on several several aspects of the application, but it sort of revolves around construction plans and environmental impact assessments and all things like that. It's all on the face of it, all quite easy stuff to turn around. And the lower teams crossing team are saying that they'll they'll be able to resubmit it. They've given a timeline of, of 90 to 120 days from when it was uh, withdrawn uh, at the back end of November. So I think we're looking, I mean, test my maths now, sort of end of February. Is, is, um, maybe start of March if you take into account the Christmas break. I think that's fair to say if that does go ahead and then that is approved, that is a that is a speed bump. What could end up being the roadblock are the legal challenges. Um, so we've got... One specifically examining the Stonehenge Tunnel decision, um, and Catherine can talk us through a bit more on this actually, because that all revolves around the planning inspectorate recommendation versus what the transport secretary's decision was. Yeah, so essentially the planning inspectorate recommended not approving the application because of heritage concerns surrounding the site, but they have... um, gone ahead the transport secretary and approved it anyway which is an interesting one to have gone against and there have been a lot of concerns raised by different groups around the the site itself and other um discoveries that have been found near Stonehenge too so they've had a lot of different factors to consider and a lot of input from a lot of different people. Yeah it's one that I think is has rumbled on for as long as I've been a new civil engineer the last sort of two and a half years and and will continue to rumble on I don't imagine this will be the last legal challenge to it. The other sort of more wider legal challenge, um, which is trying to stop the entire RIS-2 plan, uh, is due to be heard. I've, I've Originally it was due to be heard in December, but it's been pushed back to January or February now. We still haven't got a start date for that case, but that, that would really be a roadblock rather than a speed bump. And that that is... Um, brought by the Transport Action Network and it's being brought by the same legal team that managed to block Heathrow's expansion plans and it's actually using that court decision against the airport's national policy statement. It's using that as a precedent for stopping RIS2. So they've got a track record. I'm not going to speculate who's got the stronger case. And, you know, airports and roads, can you compare them? Is it, is it circles and squares or in this sort of move towards net zero, is it all, all comparable? So that's definitely one to look out for early next year. Yeah, because I guess even if you do move to electric cars, you still need road for them to run on. Whereas airports, can you replace that with road and rail instead? So can you run us through what happened at Heathrow? Because I was sort of, really how we started the year that was a big one of our big news stories right at the start before covid became a headline story wasn't it yeah that was january and that was well for me it was a shock because there'd been a few rounds of legal challenge which had been unsuccessful for those trying to block Heathrow expansion and then it it was at the the court of appeal who overturned the original decision which ruled that the government's airport national policy statement which effectively paved the way for Heathrow expansion it ruled that they hadn't considered the Paris climate agreement uh, which is all around achieving net zero carbon emissions which the UK government has agreed to so that is currently making its way through the supreme court or the or the Heathrow sorry has brought an appeal to the appeal if you like through the supreme court and 
I think we should get a decision this side of Christmas. I'm not sure, really. It seems it seems a long time ago that that court case um, concluded now. Um, when was that, Catherine? You were covering that, weren't you? Yeah, that was October. And I think at the time, um, the verdict was expected later in October, actually. But I haven't heard that it has come. So, yeah, it should be soon, I imagine. And they were. it was interesting, actually, in the Supreme Court case, Heathrow were arguing that the policy ar- arising from the Paris Agreement hadn't developed enough to really allow for anything more than a formulaic reference to it in the ANPS. Um, so that was how they were, were challenging the decision. But yeah, I, I imagine that actually the the verdict on that should be soon. So obviously we're talking about lots of projects being delayed or being halted or stopped in the tracks because of legal things. But what is the government really doing to try and make sure we actually move forward and get some projects in the pipeline? I mean, the Infrastructure Projects Authority had a £37 billion project procurement pipeline, didn't they, they introduced in the summer? And there's also Project Speed. Yeah, I mean, Project Speed is the obviously the, the government's kind of infrastructure task force, isn't it, to help facilitate that delivery of major infrastructure projects. Um, I think it's kind of the aim, overall aim is to reduce the time it takes to develop and design and deliver a lot of these projects. Um, I think Rob covered, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, didn't you, Rob, um, the fact that in the National Infrastructure Strategy, it outlined the fact that Project Speed has actually managed to reduce the, the time it will take to construct the A66 Transpennine Road upgrade. Um, so so that's a, a huge win in terms of project speed. It'll be interesting over the year ahead to see how whether there's a continued impact for projects across the board. Yeah, and I guess also we've just had the spending review as well, which was only one year, not five years as we were expecting. But it did bring out the National Infrastructure Strategy and plans for an infrastructure bank too. Rob, you were following that story quite closely, weren't you? Yeah, it's one that the National Infrastructure Commission and Sir John Armit in particular has been calling for as a replacement to the, the European equivalent, as which obviously the UK won't be entitled to um, once the transition period comes to an end at the end of this year. Um, so it's a logical thing to set up. Uh, it should be set up by the spring, they're saying. It's going to be headquartered in the north. The criticisms that have been levelled at it are that MPs will have to make the case for funding. So if you were a local council, say, in Hammersmith and you want to repair your bridge, you have to go through your MP to make the case for funding from the infrastructure bank, which which uh, actually I should have said earlier that the it will all be private investment, the UK infrastructure bank, which is something that we've never really got a grasp of in this country in terms of private investment for infrastructure projects. We've obviously had the PFIs, which came, were used a bit, deemed to be a massive failure after some sort of high profile sort of uh, fallouts between contractors and clients, such as the Birmingham City Council Roads PFI deal. And that was actually the previous chancellor or the previous, previous Chancellor, Philip Hammond, who called an end on those a couple of years ago now. So it's been a while since to sort of fix the private investment model. Hopefully this will be it and uh, we can see more private investment in infrastructure. It will be interesting to see how it does actually and how it works. I don't, I don't fully know. What about the National Infrastructure Strategy? Do you think it delivered what the industry hoped it would? I think that the National Infrastructure Strategy was so long-awaited and so 
delayed time and time again that by the time it's come out we knew everything that was going to be in it already so it commits to hs2 it's committed to crossrail there's a few bits and bobs about project speed in there which are obviously new and have been added at the last minute but in general i don't think it's i don't think it's groundbreaking i think it's what we expected sort of thing i was expecting there to be a bit more of a commitment to northern powerhouse rail in there actually considering how the government has effectively won an election off the back of pledging for things in the north and levelling them up up north. But there was no real firm commitment to it. Instead, they sort of, the line is that they keep deferring to is that those commitments will will come or decisions on those will be made in, in the integrated rail plan, which is another one we were promised this autumn, but that seems to have been kicked into the early next year. That was the thing the infrastructure strategy actually revealed that that was coming out in three months time along with the energy paper as well. Although we've been given a bit of a hint of what that will be from Boris Johnson's 10 point plan, which backs all sorts of things really like nuclear, mini nuclear. Did it back size well as well? The 10 point plan backs nuclear in general. However, the amount of money that has been given to nuclear would suggest we're going to get either Wilfa or Sizewell rather than both as was originally thought. Obviously Wilfa doesn't have a developer at the moment so you will could assume that Sizewell will be the most logical one. Catherine looks like she wants to jump in now so I'll shut up and let her. Let her. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they, it was quite interesting, actually. They um, committed, I think it was £525 million in the 10-point plan for large and smaller scale nuclear plants, um, whereas a couple of months previously, there had been talk of maybe £2 billion just for small modular reactors. So there was actually a bit of disappointment in that sense in terms of the amount of money um, maybe wasn't as much as had been hoped for. And some energy experts were saying, does that mean renewable is actually the way forward and highlighting that it is more flexible in some ways? So, um, yeah, the amount of money is interesting. But it's certainly going to be essential to sort out our energy supply if there is a greater switch to electric cars, because that energy has got to come from somewhere. They may not have emissions at source where the, the cars are driving around, but there does need power and it needs to be clean power. Otherwise, it's defeating the object, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It is defeating the object, yeah. There's no point having electric cars and uh, electric charging points everywhere if, the, if they're being powered by coal power or whatever. If we, if we need to switch back on the coal plants to power them up, it defeats the point entirely, like you're saying, yeah. So what's happening down at Hinkley? It seems to have gone quiet down there. I haven't heard much about that lately. Catherine, you were trying to get down there for a site visit, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was down there last November for a site visit um, and saw the tunnelling and they, um, yeah, they're on to Unit 2 now, aren't they, Rob? And they've... Yeah, I'm going to say yeah. <laughs> um, so they've, they're taking, um, they're basically taking their learnings from the Unit 1 reactor um, and using that to inform the work that they're doing on Unit 2, which also in turn, if Sizewell was approved, um, it would kind of inform work work there as well. But they've, um, I think, four years of construction now. They released some interesting images in September charting um, all of that progress. 
So it's just ticking on nicely. So I guess that brings us on to looking at other current projects. So the one I've noticed recently is the finisher tunnelling at Bank Capacity Station upgrade. That That's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that was a major project. Yeah, that's a huge project. And obviously uh, one of the core new civil engineer projects that we've been following. Um, so obviously a capacity upgrade. We actually had TFL's Andy Lord on the podcast earlier in the year talking about it. And and it was interesting to hear him speak because we put it to him, would would a capacity upgrade sort of be needed if you considering the change in people's working patterns, more people working from home? And he, he stressed that capacity upgrades are needed more than ever, which is really interesting to see. Perhaps that is what we'll see more of in the next decade if these sort of schemes such as Bakerloo Line Extension and Crossrail 2 aren't going to happen. Maybe we'll, we'll see some more improvements to the existing network, improvements to existing stations. I know there's a similar scheme at Camden that's planned for the Northern Line, which would free up extra capacity and it would allow more trains to run through. It sort of it basically separates the two branches of the northern end of the Northern Line so they can run as almost two independent lines, if, if that makes sense. I mean, I always have to look at pictures for that to make sense. But um, if you get a map of the Northern Line up and have a look at what happens at Camden, there onwards, they're effectively going to run two separate lines, which means they can run more trains through Camden. So perhaps that's what we'll see more of in terms of TfL projects uh, in the coming years. I just thinking then with the when you were talking about Hinkley and the fact that it's sort of been ticking along and we haven't written about it that much. The the other one that's a bit similar to that is well not in terms of the project but in terms of it's just been ticking along is is Tideway. We don't report about it that often because not much goes wrong on it. And it's just quite a, you know, consistent project. Obviously, COVID's had a bit of an impact and the cost has gone up. I think it's, is it 200 million or something like that? And it's going to be nine months later than originally planned. But in the grand scheme of things and the way infrastructure projects have gone over the last few years, that's not an enormous delay or cost overrun, really. So I guess they're, they're two projects which... I think the industry should be looking at in terms of learning lessons and and taking on best practice. So talk about cost overruns, I guess that brings us on to Crossrail because that's still rumbling on, isn't it? Opening date now, 2022? Yeah, I think so. I think it's been pushed back, yeah. Yeah, first half of 2022, although every time Mark Wilde or Andy Byford from TfL talk about that opening date they do stress that that is still a latest case scenario they're, they're both still hopeful that they can get it open at the back end of next year but it all sort of comes down to what happens in testing which actually begins today as we're recording this podcast so dynamic what is it D- dynamic systems integration testing is that it is that is that what it stands for i think yes <laughs> yeah that basically running eight trains to through the central section it's dynamic testing of some sort that begins today and then further testing's due to begin in in march i believe has been has been set as the earliest that can start um and then i think it's so the next few months i think will really sort of lift the cloud in terms of when the line is gonna gonna open finally obviously we've been down to the station in Liverpool Street, haven't we, Claire? Um, just before the pandemic hit, and it's it's quite a. It's like a cathedral almost, isn't it? It's quite quite amazing. Yeah, it's enormous. Once it's open, everyone keeps saying it. 
and say it again once it's open people will see it as a as an incredible infrastructure project it's just annoying that it's still not open but maybe if they open for christmas next year we could have our christmas party as a trip on crossrail that sounds yeah. good nc christmas party <laughs> Yeah. Sounds good, doesn't it? Oxford Street can use their crossrail lights that they ordered in 2018 as well. So they can wheel them back out of the uh, of the storage cupboard. So I guess the other rail project we haven't really talked about much so far is notice proceed on HS2. So work is actually underway. The TBMs are moving on to site. There's piling work underway. There's excavation work underway. It really is going ahead. It's also interesting we're seeing, as well as obviously following the notice to proceed, we're seeing a lot of innovation coming out. They've um, announced their innovation accelerator, which is allowing the project to really engage with SMEs, which I think is a great opportunity for those smaller sized businesses that don't always have access to those larger infrastructure projects. So having that opportunity to bring innovation, those new ideas, those creative kind of approaches to traditional engineering problems, bring those through, which will be really exciting to see going forward. But I guess the other thing that we haven't really talked about so much and that one of the things we expected to dominate our news this year is the climate crisis. So that's been something that's kind of ticked along. We have flooding at the start of the year. It was only in the headlines and everything. And then with COVID hitting, it's kind of been put on the back burner almost, especially with COP26 being delayed for another 12 months to next year. But I think the thing that really brought it back into the media's attention was the fatal derailment at Stonehaven in Scotland in August when a train hit some washout and derailed, went down, so unfortunately three people were killed. It really was quite a shock, wasn't it, I think, for the whole industry? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge shock. And, and obviously, the I think the investigation is still ongoing, isn't it? So, so yeah, it will be very interesting to see, I'm assuming, in over the next year or so, kind of what findings uh, are announced to the industry going forward. I think we'll actually see findings coming out of it much quicker than that because Network Rail have instigated an earthwork sprint, what they call an earthwork sprint team, to actually look at the impact of um, to have very heavy, intense rainfall and actually look at what, what could be done to reduce earthworks failure risk and how to mitigate it. So, and they're expecting to report this winter so I think we are going to see a lot of change very quickly there. I suppose that's the only kind of positive, I guess, to come out of something so tragic, the fact that it will hopefully going forward have a, a kind of better impact on the industry in terms of those safety measures that are put in place. So safety is something wrong network rail you've been looking at as well, Rob, isn't it, with the outcome of the Margam accident that was in July last year? Uh, yes, and that's all to do with track work- worker safety. There's been a few incidents i i guess over the last few years and um i know network rails chief exec andrew haynes is very keen on prioritizing worker safety and improving worker safety and he's he's set up a few i don't know if they're ta- are they task force he's called them task force or he's put measures in place to improve worker safety effectively and improve reporting about incidents on the railways in that case it was to do with uh, there was a few conclusions from the report but it it was effectively workers on the track when they shouldn't have been and not not adequate sort of lookouts in place and um, they effectively didn't hear the train coming because they were wearing noise cancelling headphones as, as you would so it was a tragic tragic event but like Nadine said with the the Marga well with the Stonehaven incident it has sparked a big review and a big focus on safety which can only be a good thing in the future um 
But I guess it was the fact that Andy Haynes really acknowledged that it's the cultural issues that are the most difficult things to overcome. And I think that's something that came out really with that story that you were looking at with Crossrail, Catherine, mm-hmm. that while they were focusing on coronavirus, the cultural issues kind of caused some of the safety issues they had there. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I think whenever the coronavirus hit, it was inevitable that there was so much focus on we need to keep our workers safe in that sense. Um, and it is just a, a rebalancing case, I guess, of um, what other risks are there too. I guess it just proves with health and safety, it is an ongoing challenge that mm-hmm. the industry needs to continue to focus on just because we've had a good year or something doesn't mean that we continue to have that. So I guess it now's a good time to really look at the future. What's coming up in, in the next sort of 12 months or beyond? We've got um, HS2 Phase 2B. I think that the bills are expected to go through Parliament soon, possibly bills rather than bill. Yeah, so phase 2A is due to go through, I think, right at the start of January. Almost, I've got it pencilled in for my first day back after after the Christmas break to to look into. So I I think it's going to be very early on in January, phase 2A. um, And that's the section up to crew. And then the phase 2B, yeah, that's the interesting bit. Baroness Veer... Uh, Charlotte Veer announced that the bills would be split up um, for Eastern Leg and Western Leg, which has led to fears that the the sort of the leg to to Leeds um, will in some way change or be delayed or be cancelled altogether. If I were a betting man and was going to sort of guess, hazard a guess at what might happen, I think they're going to lop it onto Northern Powerhouse Rail and let them pick up the extra £13 billion cost to keep the cost of HS2 down, um, which I've said all along since the OKV review came out that that was what was probably going to happen. Um, so I'll toot my own trumpet if that does happen. <laughs> I mean, it's going to create big challenges for Northern Powerhouse Rail, isn't it, if that, that leg gets delayed? Yes, more costs than challenges, I think, because Northern Powerhouse Rail will rely on some of that HS2 work for its network. And if it's not there, then it's going to have to do it itself, which uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail director Tim Wood on this podcast in, when was it? September, October? He said that would add £13 billion to the cost, which is obviously no short change. (laughs) So... No, that's quite a lot of money, isn't it? What about other projects? I mean, we talked about Bakerloo, but that obviously seems like quite a long way off. Um, we covered some an interesting project up in Hull, didn't we, Nadine? The Hull Lagoon. Yeah, that's right, the Hull Lagoon. I think it's uh, like £1.5 I think, this whole lagoon concept. Um, I think it would involve uh, the construction of like a courseway in the Humber Estuary, um, which would run along for about, I think, 11 kilometres. And it would kind of create a a non-tidal lagoon along Hull's waterfront. Um, Also, I think the the concept would also include a a four-line highway, which would be built kind of alongside the courseway. Um, and the kind of overriding aim is to relieve congestion on the A63, which is the main kind of route into the city at the moment. Um, I think when I spoke to the team earlier this year, I think they're quite some way away from kind of submitting an application for planning permission. I think there's still quite a lot of work to do and a lot of research that is needed to really convince the Environment Agency of the project's merits. Um, but it'd be really interesting to see how this one develops over the next few years. But what about what's coming up next year? What are the big projects for next year? Then obviously Tideways continuing, Crossrail finishing off, HS2 getting underway properly. What else? Lower Thames Crossing tunnelling, perhaps, 
Is that going to start next year or is the procurement that, that won't that start all? next year? Preachers no. procurement, I imagine. Yeah, no, you're right, entirely right. So when's Stonehenge supposed to start then? Or we'll get a winner of who the main contractor is surely soon now that the planning application's been green-lighted. But will the legal challenge delay that? I don't think so. I don't. It's not delayed anything so far, is it? They're just ploughing on as normal. I think if they can get a TBM in the ground before the legal challenge, they'll do it. I don't think they'll get a TBM in the ground next year. I think it's more the planning side of things. I, I think it's 2022 that they were looking to get started on site. Yeah, so I think it'd been pushed back. Big year, 2022. Yeah. You think next year will be just the year of preparing for 2022? Who knows? I mean, it's hard to know what's going to come up, isn't it? Because 2020, we thought it was going to be about Brexit and the climate crisis. And it's all been about coronavirus. But obviously, those challenges still exist for 2021. And I think the focus on carbon net zero really will be quite strong next year. I mean, the 156th president of the IC, Rachel Skinner, was sworn in, in in November. And she came and spoke to us last month about her focus on carbon net zero. And she really wants the industry to start focusing on that and looking at what they're going to be doing. So it could be interesting to follow her over next year to find out how things are developing there. Yeah, you're right. And I think, as Rachel mentioned during the the podcast, it's not a a kind of this net zero goal is not a kind of focus for the next year only. It's a long term thing that the whole industry really needs to buy into to make it work for everybody. But I think certainly with having COP26 in November next year, it's really going to focus people's attentions. It's such a shame it got delayed by 12 months, but we really need to start looking at that and looking at what the industry needs to do. So plenty of challenges for next year, for sure. Yep, there is, there sure is. And plenty of headlines for us to report on and to news to bring you in the podcast. So I think that's been a really interesting look back at what's happened in the last 12 months. And I'd like to wish all of you guys happy Christmas and a good new year and to all of our listeners too. Hopefully we'll join you again in 2021. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.